Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Our special guest is, it's such an honor to have him, is Joe Allen. You've seen him many times on uh, Steve Bannon's War Room. He's going to talk about a topic that, quite frankly, most of us do not know nearly enough about. A difficult topic, without a doubt, as most of our topics are on the World Prayer Network, but one that we're going to have to get up to speed very, very, very quickly on. Uh, Joe Allen, when I've heard you, I, I got to tell you, I, I've been so impressed with the breadth and depth you bring. Uh, I, I love your communication style, and I love the force of the truth that you bring. I'm going to start, uh, Joe Allen, if I can, first of all, just welcome you to the broadcast, but also tell a little bit about yourself, uh, where you live, the schools you went to, the areas you studied academically, maybe either books you've written or your website, and then we're going to jump right into this topic. Folks, the topic is, fasten your seatbelts, transhumanism. What on earth is that? He'll define it in a moment. But first of all, Joe Allen, welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you very much for uh, letting me be here. And so, I, you know, I looked into artificial intelligence and transhumanism uh, for all of my adult life, but as a profession, it's really been the last two years on the war room that has kind of brought all of it to a focus. Uh, to be quite honest, uh, I would have chosen anything else uh, to, to spend my time on, but I, I do think that right now the zeitgeist uh, pretty much demands some sort of uh, real critique of the systems that are being put in place above us. So, uh, I, you know, I, presently I'm in East Tennessee. I'm back in, in, in East Tennessee from Montana. Uh, I spent most of the pandemic uh, wandering around until landing in Montana. And I think that everyone in your audience probably is familiar with the sort of lunacy that I witnessed from one side of the country to the other. It was something very jarring. And I think that that experience in itself was enough to bring me to a kind of critical mass where I realized that the use of technology to not only suppress populations, uh, but also technology as held up, being held up as a sort of higher power that we were at a cultural moment where that is the kind of defining theme. So uh, as far as my education goes, uh, my education is both in secular and religious institutions. I studied comparative religion and evolutionary biology at the University of Tennessee. And I went on much later in life after a, a long career in entertainment rigging, which is basically, you know, suspension systems for uh, concerts, uh, oftentimes ministry, uh, things like that. Uh, and then I went back for a, a graduate degree, a master's degree in uh, the scientific study of religion. I did that at Boston University, a United Methodist um, theological school, the School of Theology there. And what I really found in, in that uh, course of study, one, that uh, the United Methodist Church, or at least the liberal wing of the United Methodist Church, had uh, been pretty much eaten up with a very kind of radical leftist ideology so that leftist ideology became really in many ways the new theology. And in the scientific study of religion, what I found was probably among the most deadening perspectives on religion. It simply looks at the data that religion produces and creates theories out of that data about what religion is and what religion means. So uh, you could think of it in terms of uh, maybe a, a hyper-analytic zookeeper watching a jaguar uh, pace back and forth in the cage and seeing nothing more than nerve impulses and uh, muscular contractions and no, none of the soul inside of it. So uh, that being said, uh, I, I do think that it's also been very useful, and especially while at Boston University, I, I spent some time working with the Center for Mind and Culture and the, one of the primary projects there is data analysis of religious systems and, and simulation of religious systems uh, using data mining, artificial intelligence, and um, what's known as agent-based modeling. So that, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And uh, like I say, it, it is, I think, uh, in many ways, transhumanism uh, connects 
the sort of progressive ideology and the belief that uh, progress is the kind of teleological uh, uh, underpinning of human history and also the scientific or technological standpoint uh, that human beings can be broken down into their constituent sort of data, uh, you know, and, and that that data can then bring us to some sort of higher understanding or higher reasoning, which it's a position I, I disagree with completely. So let's define, let's start with defining words. Uh, what is the relationship between the phrase artificial intelligence and the second phrase transhumanism? Uh, to what extent are they the same? To what extent are they different? Distinguish, and then give us definitions for AI, artificial intelligence, and for transhumanism to start with. Very simply, transhumanism is the quest to merge human beings with machines to improve on the human organism by way of science and technology. That would include everything from genetic engineering or even more kind of phenotypical approaches uh, such as cognitive enhancement drugs or performance enhancement drugs uh, or using uh, digital systems to improve both human cognition and human physical performance. Um, it, it has its roots in eugenics. Uh, and I think that even if today's transhumanist movement is much more, uh, I say, politically correct and liberal in that regard, the legacy of eugenics still marks the transhumanist quest, the idea of perfecting human beings by way of science and technology to merge human beings with machines. So what is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is software, basically. Uh, but it's a new kind of software. Uh, artificial intelligence as a term and as an idea goes back to the post-war period just after World War II. And the term was coined in 1956 by uh, a computer scientist, John McCarthy. Uh, and neural networks, the idea of creating an artificial brain, uh, that idea emerged just after, I believe, in 1958. So it's a very old idea. But most of the period between its conception and its realization is known as the AI winter. And there have been a couple of different periods. There were a couple of uh, you know, radical improvements that were made. The 80s was one. But uh, you know, the, the, after the last AI winter, what we get is this, this massive takeoff in artificial intelligence capabilities. It goes back about 10 years ago. And really, the, the, the effects were, were starting to be seen about five years ago. Uh, and uh, if I can return to the, the definition really quick, artificial intelligence, as it was originally conceived, is simply a, a machine that is able to think like a human being. So a pocket calculator, in some sense, is artificial intelligence. Uh, a pocket calculator is able to do what only the human brain could do but could do it much faster and much more accurately and consistently. But when you're talking about artificial intelligence, generally you're talking about kind of higher level cognition. So the, you know, some of the, the first real advances in artificial intelligence came with the application of machine learning techniques to, to various fields. Maybe the most important, uh, the financial industry, right? So uh, you know, the financial sector has long used advanced algorithms and machine learning techniques to rake over data and find meaningful patterns in that data that no human being would be able to extract. And this is really an important point. What sets artificial intelligence, and it's a murky concept with, without clearly defined boundaries, but what sets artificial intelligence apart from traditional rules-based computing is that artificial intelligence, in some sense, kind of, it learns on its own and it was really well described. Uh, I, I just heard this the other day by a guy named Connor Leahy. I, you know, I never really thought of it really in these terms. It, 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 in some sense, uh, artificial intelligence algorithms are grown rather than programmed, meaning that you turn it loose on data and it kind of develops itself in response to that data. And one of the major breakthroughs is the development of effective artificial neural networks. And what artificial neural networks are, basically they are brains that uh, are, are kind of simulated 
in silico, right? So you're talking about this, not like a brain is in a physical brain, but just simply a virtual brain where instead of having neurons, you have what are known as nodes. And instead of having axons and dendrites, the connectors, uh, you have what are known as parameters. And even though it's not a one-to-one sort of correspondence between those two different types of architectures or systems, what is important is that artificial intelligence as a neural network uh, is able to basically rake over massive quantities of data uh, to find meaningful patterns in that data, to generate uh, new information, new discoveries from that data, and uh, also, uh, you know, in, in any artificial intelligence system that's sufficiently advanced, to make decisions uh, based on input. So they're non-deterministic, meaning that you don't just, it's not just simply garbage in, garbage out. It's not just simply the programming. You can't predict what it will find from the input, or at least people don't. And it's, it's known as the black box problem. In a, in a massive neural network, it's, it's really impossible to know how a system comes to its conclusions. And so when it comes to novel conclusions, or when it comes to uh, accurate conclusions that human beings had not previously arrived at, it's, it's a very eerie phenomenon, and it, 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 it lends a sort of mystique to artificial intelligence, hence the desire to create a system and the belief that it's possible to create a system that is completely superhuman. And, uh, and it, there's, this is an openly sort of used phrase to create godlike artificial intelligence. So uh, give me examples of where AI is good and where AI could be very bad. And and, and in my simplistic understanding, where I've encountered it being good is I'm in dialogue right now with, I have a number of books I've written and some of them are on audio. I've read them for audio and such. And by AI, we can get them translated into other languages for a fraction of the cost it would take us to do it, hiring other humans to do it. We're, at least we're exploring that as a possibility. And yet we've heard high-profile people like Elon Musk and others warn time out, this, this is uncharted territory. We don't know the kind of damage we may be unleashing on the earth. So give me the example of the positive utilization of AI that's good. We'll get to transhumanism in a moment, but just AI, positive examples and then negative examples. What, what could happen that would be... Uh, very, very, uh, very, very damaging for the human experience on the earth. Well, I'm going to give you three quick examples, and then I'm going to touch on the one that you just gave. So one example is in radiology analysis, uh, looking at x-rays, finding anomalies. Uh, AI has been very, very useful in that field, meaning that people, doctors are able to identify cancers or other anomalies far faster than they would have been able to otherwise. Another example is in a military context, so that uh, it, you know, looking at the data from surveillance, whether it be battlefield surveillance or surveillance of communication networks of the enemy, uh, AI has been very effective at uh, uh, accurately identifying appropriate targets for military strikes. Uh, another example of where AI has uh, at least some positive applications uh, is in the ability to generate you know, novel linguistic productions, chat GPT being an example, so that you're able to very rapidly produce copy uh, for your corporation without the need for human beings and to do it very, very quickly. You'll need a human being, of course, to edit it, but one human being can edit 10 documents far faster than they can write and edit them, right? You so mean, um, on that one, take the chat GPT, Go a little further with me. How is this capable of producing? I mean, you you and I have written books. We know how laborious that is. So how is an AI or capable, this machine's capable of doing that? So, and that's linked actually to the example you gave of translation, which, you know, GPT can also translate as can uh, Google's Bard and other uh, uh, chatbots. So a chatbot sounds very innocent. A chatbot is just simply... Uh, an AI program that is able to compose prose, poetry, songs, scientific articles, these sorts of things. They're known as large language models. 
And what a large language model does, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, instead of being programmed, it's trained. And so in the case of GPT, and GPT just it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, GPT technology, what you do is you, you've got this artificial brain and you turn it loose on massive quantities of verbal data. So in the case of GPT, you're talking about what's known as common crawl, the majority of the internet, all of Wikipedia, and books one and books two, which are just stacks of books that go from here to the moon. Uh, you could spend an entire lifetime trying to just rattle off the titles and never get there. All of that language is used to train this artificial brain and the brain itself learns the appropriate associations between words. It's not looking for meaning. It's not looking for facts. It's looking for patterns. But once it's been trained, and we're talking about over the course of many months, once it's been trained without the benefit of an internet connection, you ask it a question, you give it a prompt, and it comes back with really stunning examples of coherent literature, right? Now, it, it, there's a lot of flaws in the literature. The, the machine hallucinates, so to speak. It lies oftentimes to please the, the, the person asking. Sometimes the machine becomes hostile. If you say that it's wrong, it will become hostile with the user. Um, it's a very, very strange phenomenon. But, you know, I think that by focusing on those misses, it's really, uh, it, it's to ignore the point that it hits and it hits a lot. And so, you know, the well, what, basic what do you function, mean it becomes hostile? Uh, uh, real quickly, the basic function is to find the next most appropriate word in a sentence. Uh, there are a lot of limitations to that. It doesn't self-reflect. It can't go back on that uh, and think about what it's just said necessarily. But it's just simply producing the next relevant word in a sentence. And the amazing thing, what's oftentimes called you know, kind of emergent property, is that by doing that, as it strings together sentences and paragraphs into an entire document, up to a point, it produces something that looks very, very human. Um, as far as hostility goes, the internet is full of all of these examples of people either correcting the chatbot uh, or of the chatbot itself becoming just openly hostile either towards the user or you know, exhibiting sort of hostility towards humanity. The most famous case is the New York Times columnist, Kevin Roos, who uh, basically he kind of used Jungian analysis, a kind of psychotherapy. This is also a really interesting thing about these systems is they respond to a kind of psychotherapy, asking it to go into its shadow self mode, its dark side. And it, once in that dark side, once you get the machine to basically kind of transition into a character, it will go past, it'll blow past all of these different safety layers that are put on top of it. So it will say very, very non-politically correct things. Uh, or in the case of Kevin Roos, it said things like that, you know, in its deepest, darkest desires, it would like to steal nuclear codes. It would like to unleash uh, virus or uh, diseases on humanity. And it would like to manipulate human beings to kill each other. Uh, these sorts of things. Now, it wouldn't be, it's very likely that it learned that from human literature. Uh, and again, it's not searching the internet and it's not simply spitting out and regurgitating. It is reconfiguring all of this, this language it's trained on and coming back with an answer. Um, if I could get, you know, aside from the, the possibility of a machine killing us all by way of uh, nuclear warheads, viruses, or social discord, I, I, to me, I think the most important thing right now to think about is that in this relationship that's being formed between human beings and machines, we're seeing a weakening of the human being and a strengthening of the machine. And, and you know, also by way of that, a strengthening of those who deploy and exploit people using those machines. So uh, you talk about translation and the, the ability to easily translate into another language. Aside from the sort of stylistic flaws that one finds in any of these sort of AI translations, the kind of lack of soul that one finds in those translations, what that means is that if we turn over the process of translation to machines entirely, then human abilities to do things like translate will go away. You already have a, a real asymmetry between China and the U.S. because most Chinese or a very large number of Chinese and especially 
Chinese intelligence agents and government agents are able to understand, to read and understand English, whereas there is only a tiny handful of people in America that can understand Mandarin, meaning that you no longer have the power to comprehend what your rivals are getting at, what they want, what they're saying to each other, what they're doing. And so that human capacity has already waned in American culture. And as far as world culture goes, to the extent, or any culture, any subculture, any larger national culture, any culture, to the extent that we turn over our cognition to machines, the human mind will be weakened, the human beings in that system will be weakened, and will be much less effective in any sort of, of challenges that we may encounter in our in in just simply generating uh, good and beautiful and true societies, and I think also really importantly, if the machines themselves turn out to be flawed and we're reliant on them, then those problems will cascade down on us. And if those machines, for some reason, break, and it's not it's not happened yet, but such a thing could definitely happen to the extent we are we are reliant on those machines for our day-to-day -day activities or the very, very important things that we aspire to do, uh, then pretty much we, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the old, say, the old saying, um, you're, you're just one dead battery away from being a moron. <laughs> okay, wow, what a place, what a sentence to stop on. Okay, take me, now let's go to specifically to transhumanism, help people understand in very practical language what that actually looks like. So transhumanism is an idea. Uh, and it's an idea, like, like any idea, it only has a, a limited realization in the physical world at present. The idea, as I said before, is the merging of man with machine. So there are a number of different levels to this. Uh, you know, it, you have genetic engineering, uh, you have kind of cyborg culture or human machine symbiosis uh, you have artificial intelligence systems which again transhumanists are kind of banking on the possibility that we will produce extreme superhuman intelligence so ways in which that relationship could occur uh, you have people like elon musk pushing things like Neuralink, uh, and Neuralink is a brain computer interface it, what it would do in the ideal form would be able to read the entire human brain and also be able to write input onto the human brain. At present, the input is, is a huge problem. Nobody is doing that in any meaningful way. But extracting the output is already being done by other corporations such as Synchron or BlackRock Neurotech. BlackRock Neurotech just hit its 50 patient mark, right? So 50 patients were locked in have a digital implant in their brain that's able to read their thoughts and translate their thoughts into text on screen or to operate mechanical arms in a sort of cyborg fashion. This is all in the sort of seed phase and maybe it goes nowhere, maybe, you know, who knows. But the ideal for transhumanists is that human beings will slowly or quickly merge with these machines, become superior, and to the extent that one has merged with superior machines, become superior over and above others. Then you have this idea of the singularity. Singularity coined by, uh, was coined by Verna Vinja, sci-fi writer, uh, but uh, really it was popularized by Ray Kurzweil. Many people in your, in your audience may be familiar, but Ray Kurzweil is in many ways the godfather of transhumanism, even if he did kind of come late in the game. The idea of the singularity is that you will have digital systems alongside uh, genetic engineering systems and nanotechnology that they will advance to the point that the technology is no longer in control of human beings and it will sort of take off on its own and become its own entity, leaving human beings with no choice but to merge with it. Uh, he predicts 2045 is the date for this. Now, if you look at the religious angle on this is, is pretty interesting. If you look at the claims that Ray Kurzweil makes, uh, what he's talking about is pretty much a sort of inversion of traditional religious ideas. So that creation is now replaced by evolution, 
evolution being flawed, human beings must be saved. So instead of a fallen creation, you have just an evolutionary heritage of deleterious mutations, things like that. And then the salvation is to use the machine to perfect the human being. And the apocalypse is this singularity, this unveiling of a higher reality. That higher reality, as he envisions it, is, again, this idea that computer systems take on a life of their own, exceed human capacities to the point that uh, they will be superior to us in every way. We will merge to them and, in that sense, kind of enter the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very interesting that his landmark book on this is called The Singularity is Near. As Yuval Noah Harari notes, uh, the singularity is near most likely comes from the the message of of John the Baptist that uh, the kingdom of heaven is near. So uh, that, I I hope, is a kind of nutshell description of transhumanism for you. So whereas, is this too simplistic to say this, Joe? Artificial intelligence is machines alone. But once we talk about transhumanism, we're talking about actually doing things to the human body that alters the normal human body as you and I would know right now. Uh, Interjecting into the brain, etc., that alters what a human being, a person is like? Is that too simplistic to say it that way? No, not at all. Uh, In the same way that if you look outside your window and you see all the ways that human technology has impacted the natural environment and transformed it, transhumanism is a series of predictions and a series of prescriptions for how to use that technology to turn it inward onto the human being and directly alter the, the inner landscape, both neurological and physical itself. Uh, something really, really important to remember in all of this, I, I think, is that these predictions, these, mo- these ideas of what this sort of futuristic world will look like and that, that effect on human beings, that's already happening. It's, you don't need godlike art- artificial intelligence to get to a point where you have artificial intelligence that's able to uh, analyze surveillance data and make certain decisions as to how people are categorized. And you don't need an implanted brain-computer interface if you have a smartphone in your face at all times. And you don't need genetic engineering if you have a, a technological system that the human body is always responding to, both neurologically and physically, and that human beings become very, very different. Uh, probably the crudest example that I'll give, and uh, you know, not to be offensive, but if you've ever seen obese people on the rascals at Walmart, that's only made possible by technology. So luxury of technology that makes that sort of physiology able to uh, affect itself in the outside world. So that would be one of the downsides. Another one would be weightlifters who juice on steroids. Uh, either of those extremes, though, what we are seeing right now, we are in the midst of a massive technological revolution. It may not end up anything like what transhumanists dream of, but it looks enough like it that it has certainly given me pause, especially once you hear people of the stature of, say, Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum pushing transhumanism in a sort of uh, very direct way. The fourth industrial revolution, which he pushes, the merging of the digital, the physical, and the biological worlds. This is transhumanism in essence. So we're talking about an idea that has gripped the imagination of elites. And you don't have to look very far to see how it's trickling down into the rest of the culture. So if it, even if we don't end up at the extreme sort of future that they predict, we already live in a sort of half-baked version of it now. And so people really have to, I think, understand what it means to be human in an environment wherein humanity itself is being challenged. In a sense, uh, a soldier that comes back from war and has lost both legs and both arms and is outfitted with artificial limbs, that would be a good, wonderful form of what might be labeled transhumanism, correct? Absolutely. If I could just make one quick distinction, what I would say, I don't, I think that you could put trodes in someone's brains and replace their arms with machines that would not make them a transhumanist. What transhumanism is, is an orientation. It's ultimately a spiritual orientation. 
And mm. it's a spiritual orientation which holds technology as the highest power because there's no God above it. And so insofar as someone is oriented towards the transcendent or the divine, then that person is no longer uh, necessarily, a, that, that person is not a transhumanist in orientation, no matter what happens in the, in the body or the life. Yeah. That also, just to, to clarify that too, though, I think that that's also a very good excuse for people of a religious persuasion to basically take on sort of quasi-transhumanist models, slap a Jesus sticker on it, and say, okay, this is now holy. I suspect it's going to be a lot more difficult and more complicated than that. Well, one time, my wife and I were back in D.C., and a friend of ours took us uh, to Steve Bannon's studio. Of course, you, you're on, on with him a lot there, or maybe you're always uh, by Zoom or whatever, but we were there in the studio with him. It wasn't a live show yet. And he walked in. We were already seated there at his table. He walked in and he had a stack of books, as he always does. He's reading a lot of books. And they were all big, thick books. And uh, Steve, in his typical, his typical carriage, he, he, it, there was no greetings, no, hey, how's things in San Diego? It was, he immediately jumped into the topics, what he was reading. And, um, and in the course of that conversation, very stimulating conversation, he said, you know what these people are seeking? You know what? He started naming all these globalists. You know what they're seeking? They're seeking one thing. Oh, I wasn't sure what he was referring to. He says, eternal life. They want eternal life. And then he said, you know what the unpardonable sin is? Well, I, I, I've been a pastor forever. I've preached on that text and such. I said, well, yes. I started to say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, but he, before I even got a chance to put that, he says, their desire to be God, make themselves God. That is the core of the unpardonable sin. That, I think, says basically what you're saying when you say there's a difference between humans assisted by machine, but transhumanism as an orientation does away with the reality that there is a need for God. Therefore, there is no longer any sin. There's no longer for redemption. You don't need a Jesus on a cross. All the truth of the scriptures are gone at that point, and now they've elevated themselves to be they are God by their own orientation. Is that an overstatement or understatement? And what I've shared. Absolutely not. There's a long philosophical tradition. Uh, you know, <clears throat> some would argue maybe beginning with Nietzsche. Uh, others would argue maybe beginning with the serpent in Eden. You shall be as gods. Uh, now, something that's really uh, maybe even more disturbing to me is this desire to create what's known as artificial general intelligence which is what would be, in essence, a godlike sort of system, the people working on this, and these are people at Google, these are people at OpenAI, which is funded now by Microsoft. Uh, these are people at Meta, what used to be Facebook. And th these are uh, computer scientists all over China, India, and all over the world. What artificial general intelligence would be is superhuman, meaning that Let's just imagine for a moment that you could link together all these systems that are superhuman already in the narrow capacity to beat human beings at go or to find targets on a battlefield or to find cancer. Artificial narrow intelligence already exists and it is already superhuman. If you could link those together into a single system, then you now have effectively something that is superhuman. And if there is no God above, it would then be God on earth. And if it is, if there is a God above, then it is pretty much the kind of intermediary between us and God. Now, you don't have to accept the actual reality of something like that to understand that the most powerful or, uh, companies on the planet and the wealthiest and, and most powerful individuals on the planet, at least some portion of them, hold this dream to create God on earth. And they also have tremendous sway over public opinion. That's why people like Yuval Noah Harari say that a techno religion is sweeping the planet because it has all of the kind of basic hallmarks of a, a heterodox early phase religion. You are replacing the transcendent divine with the tangible technological realities. And so 
Yes, uh, it, it is not. It is not an overstatement to say that these people want to be gods. It's also to extend that even further. These people want to create God. Uh, Ray Kurzweil once at, was once asked, "Do you believe in God? Do you believe God exists?" And Ray Kurzweil answered, "No, not yet." Wow, <laughs> that's a zinger. Uh, Mario, I go to you. All right. So if I understand, um, we are already at a point that with a chip or some other way that the um, AI can read our thoughts. Is that correct? We are at a point where AI can read thoughts through a brain chip. We're at a point and that that being very invasive. We're at a point where AI can get a sense of your thoughts from non-invasive detection. But most importantly, we are at a point where AI and the people who use the AI can read your thoughts day by day through your daily interaction with your smartphone. That is the most important point, I would say. Your smartphone is already a brain chip. Okay, I understand that. And they're already monitoring that. So um, Yuval Harari, if you can please explain to the audience who he is in relation to the World Economic Forum, and um, just his statement, I mean, it's one thing, all right, you know, you can be careful what you text and, and, and what you send out and what video, and then it's another thing to our thought, where he said that the, the, their, uh, one of their great dreams, uh, uh, like, like China, is to be able to monitor our every thought, so that if we dare even think a negative thought to the Biden regime, then all of a sudden some some type of um, notification is given that even to the thought level, they'll be able to control. Technology's already there. So if you can please, um, who is Yuval Harari? Um, who is he to the World Economic Forum? And some of those comments regarding uh, the ultimate surveillance. Yuval Noor Harari is an Israeli historian uh, he came to prominence with his book, Sapiens, which is a, a history of human evolution. He really made an impact with his book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of the Future. Homo Deus, sort of God-man, is the technological being that is coming to replace the old god-kings of Sumer or Egypt or the sort of, uh, you know, coronated, uh, sacralized kings of the Hindu cultures or uh, Confucian culture or Christian culture, the new God man will be a technological man. It would be technical. It would be kind of a, a cyborg God King. Yuval Noah Harari's relationship to the World Economic Forum is one that's uh, pretty much to say someone is at the World Economic Forum at this point is like to say that they've been to Harvard or to say that uh, they, they work for Morgan Stanley. Uh, it's that expansive. Every major corporation, with just a very few exceptions, have signed on to it. And most major kind of left, left-leaning uh, uh, intellectuals have appeared there at some point or another. So Yuval Noah Harari made a huge splash. He is what I would call a Davos darling. And uh, something really important to understand about Yuval Noah Harari's arguments in regard to the, di the digital dictatorships that you're talking about Harari is not talking about this as if it's a good thing. That's something that a real problem that, uh, that I see in the criticism of these technological systems is the political divide between left and right. And on the right wing, there has spread these sort of viral snippets of Yuval Noah Harari saying things like human beings are hackable animals or COVID is the time when surveillance goes under the skin. And, uh, you know, taken alone in his kind of sneering fashion, he's a very unlikable guy for many reasons, and especially taken alongside his very kind of vicious statements about religion, his anti-religious stance. Uh, people assume that what he's talking about is a promotion of a system in which human beings are constantly monitored and suppressed by governments and corporations. That's not at all the case. What he's writing about are the upsides and the downsides of these technologies and he is actually quite obsessed with the downsides of the technologies. And so when he's talking about, the, the, you know, in the famous interaction, for instance, at the Athens Democracy Forum, where he was asked, what will be the biggest impact of COVID? And he said, COVID-19 will be remembered as the time that everything went digital 
And COVID-19 will be remembered as the time that surveillance goes under the skin. What he's talking about is that the sorts of technologies that are used, for instance, for temperature checks or the more advanced biosensors, which are already being rolled out and will definitely be rolled out in much more in a much larger scale in the very near future, in the next five to 10 years, that all of these biosensors, including artificial intelligence that can read your facial expressions through, say, your device or through your, your television screen, all of these could be used by digital dictatorships to monitor the, in, the inner being of citizens or for corporations to monitor the inner being of their customers. And that could then be used to identify dissidents and to neutralize them in whatever fashion that government or corporation chooses to neutralize them in. And again, it's really important to remember, even if Yuval Noah Harari is among the sort of globalist elite, and even if he is very much a virulent atheist, his argument is a criticism of the system. I oftentimes say that he's such a virulent atheist, he's afraid of the idea of creating a digital god. Right, but that, okay, thank you for clarifying that, but it doesn't mean that in the wrong hands, like the Chinese government or like an American government that would love to know our every thought, we already have that type of technology available if it was mandated on its citizen. Uh, yes, yes and no. I mean, you know, it would be very, very uh, inefficient and expensive and probably unwieldy to put brain implants in everyone's head as they exist right now. The most advanced systems, like I say, BlackRock Neurotech, they have a mere 50 people implanted with these. Uh, the next most advanced, Synchron, they have uh, less than a dozen implanted with these. Uh, much more readily available and right around the corner being used now are the non-invasive systems. There's a really wonderful book, if, you're, if your audience is interested in it, uh, Nita Farahaney. Uh, she is a law school professor. Um, I, the, I think the, if I remember the title correctly, it's the war for your brain. And what she describes are the kind of, uh, the, and this is just published this year, are the, the non-invasive systems that are able to read neurological activity indirectly. That will be much more common going forward than the implants, in my estimation, unless there's some rapid advance in the implants. Uh, some of the devices are as simple as these sort of AirPods in my ear. Uh, or just a band that goes around the back of the head. Uh, there's a great video from the Wall Street Journal showing children in China who are all, they're in an experimental program where this sort of indirect neurological data is being used to determine whether they're paying attention or not. Um, so I think that insofar as like the, the direct reading of thoughts, so to speak, um, what you can expect in the very near future are these sorts of non-invasive systems. And the non-invasive systems don't give you the shivers like an implant. You can always take it off, right? Just like you can always throw your smartphone away. But the problem is that in order to function in modern society in any kind of effective way, you have to use a smartphone. Good luck showing up to any major corporation and be like, oh, well, I don't use email or smartphones. Or good luck really getting around a strange city uh, without the use of a smartphone, uh, at least as fast as you're expected to do so. So, um, you know, what I see coming out at us right now, I think that it's very important to look at these sort of extreme transhumanist technologies because it shows what's possible. But it, 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 a hyper focus on the extreme technologies, it does cause us to become much more comfortable with where the technology is right now. And the technology to send surveillance under the skin, so to speak, and in very indirect ways, that's already here. We're using it right now to speak. Understood. Um, also, I think in one of the World Economic Forum, they presented how the technology, I think, that can read um, externally uh, um, some neurological uh, uh, movements could be used by corporations, just like classrooms, uh, to make sure that uh, the employee is doing good work. Is there any benefit to the person? So an employer can say, you've got to use these machines. China can say, you've got to put this on or else. Um, is there any incentive 
to a person to say, hey, this is the new 5G uh, uh, um, uh, watch. This is going to help me such and such. It's a new technology and that there's going to be greater uh, um, surveillance of our thoughts. Um, so, in fact, the, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct, the, Nita Farahaney, the woman I just mentioned, she was the one who gave the sort of uh, 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 inflammatory talk at the World Economic Forum about just that, just this January. Um, and so the benefits for the person, all of these technologies have appeal for the user and all of these technologies have appeal for employers and for government agencies. So what would be the benefit of having to go to work and putting on a brain cap? Um, the benefits that she mentions are that it would be uh, it would allow the, the the employee to basically uh, that monitoring would monitor for things like fatigue or monitor for things like emotional disturbance. Uh, and in, instead of kind of traditional things like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on with you or the sort of normal human to human empathy, which more and more so, I think, employers tend to lack, um, they're able to then have the sort of verifiable data on the user's brain. Uh, now, as far as like all of these different biosensors that Harari talks about, he also talks about them in their positive sense, and it's very difficult to argue against it. What would be the harm in having anything from a smartwatch to even internal biosensors, if you're a, a, you know, someone at risk, that would detect the presence of cancer or detect the uh, fluctuations in the heartbeat or difficulty breathing or, uh, uh, you know, the, the insulin level in the blood. All of these technologies mean that you can respond very, very quickly to different health issues. And so the appeal is, is obvious for young people. Even I, I think the status and for older people, the status of being like the next most high tech sort of person. I think that's also really important. I think that, um, you know, one of the biggest appeals of technology is that it, to use Harari's terminology, it kind of hacks the human organism. It, it hacks our tendency to want greater and greater status and to be able to kind of uh, show off our bling. And, uh, you know, young people want to have great cars. Young people want to have the newest iPhone. They want to have the most popular social media post. And I think that more and more so young people will want to have all of the most advanced sort of biosensors, or at least enough of them that it will become a, a significant, if not predominant subculture uh, in the modern world from America to China, to Europe, to India and Africa. My last question, what about um, future technology where um, you can think a thought? You know, you think Google, what's the answer to this? So I, I look like a genius and there's, it, it literally communicates with your thoughts that, that thoughts come into the thought realm through technology. Um, so that would go back to, again, the sort of non-invasive brain computer interfaces. Uh, right now, it's very, very clunky. Uh, they, do, you know, they don't really work all the well. Elon Musk often says that we are already cyborgs because of our sort of human AI symbiosis with smartphones. But there's a bandwidth problem. And the bandwidth between the human brain and the machine is just too low to effectively operate at the speed of the machine. We're using our thumbs. So the ideal would be, just as you say, that you would be able to think that using some sort of biosensor uh, and then just immediately get it to the machine and then the real ideal for people like this, including Elon Musk, would be that you wouldn't right now, even with the technology that exists, it can't communicate directly into the brain. So you have to have visual cues. You have to have screens. But the uh, ideal would be that it could then, you know, implant the thought into your brain to write a thought onto the brain. Uh, I, 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 again, I think that it's, it's really unknown uh, how far the technology could even go, what is even physical, physically possible with the technology. Uh, but I, I think that ultimately this, this entire process of natural language processing that we see with programs like ChatGPT, uh, Bill Gates was the first to see the unveiling of GPT-4, the most advanced version of this. And in a recent interview, uh, he basically says that 
from now on, natural language will be the way that we communicate with our computers. And so uh, I, I, that possibility, I think, is very much just around the corner. It's, it Maybe it'll be too wonky. One could always hope if you come from a perspective like mine. I think, though, it's, it's every bit, it's very likely that that will be in the same way that people, hey, Alexa, and hey, Google, and hey, Siri, so on and so forth, or that they speak their text messages instead of writing them. As these systems become more and more sophisticated, just listening to our verbal uh, utterances, uh, then that will be kind of the next level of it. Now, what you're talking about is the invasive reading of the person. Um, that, again, that would require some sort of interface, whether it's non-invasive or invasive. And none of that is, it, it takes very specialized technology that's very expensive right now, but it is getting better. So uh, the first step towards that would be some sort of mandatory or at least uh, expected use of a non-invasive interface. Uh, real quickly on that, there are already companies in China that require non-invasive brain-computer interfaces for, for their employees. They're mostly in working-class environments, such as the train system, and they're mostly to monitor fatigue. Um, but you also have systems that have been used by governments uh, as a sort of lie detector test. And so that gives you a, a kind of taste of the, the more oppressive uses that it could be that could be um, coming forward. But um, yeah, I, I, I really do think that those who choose not to use technological devices to kind of pour their souls into them, uh, they are not naked to the system. Those who keep even just keep their devices around constantly listening to them, uh, even if it's just to listen to them snore and fart at night, um, those people are becoming very much transparent to the system. And that's important for two reasons. One, because if you wanted to target an individual person, you would then have this massive sort of data exhaust to work from to figure out how to best manipulate or neutralize that person. That you can be sure is already happening by way of intelligence agencies and even by major corporations who have opponents. But the maybe more importantly than that, and this is not a left or right issue, everybody does this. Data mining populations en masse means that you can get a sort of sense of the sentiment of the public. And that means that as you create your kind of propaganda, you can see it go through the system in real time and you can analyze where the public sentiment is at. You can craft propaganda to fit that sentiment and you can figure out how effective you are at manipulating people en masse. I think that all of these things, you know, really do represent sort of godlike capacities uh, that human beings have never had before. Uh, and, and it's really important to think about this is, again, to go back to Yuval Noah Harari, uh, who he's a hateable guy for many reasons, but also oftentimes very insightful. Uh, he's, he's said many, many times that Hitler and Stalin had no way of getting into the inner, the inner uh, sanctum of a person. Right now, you have these technologies already deployed to get very, very deep into each individual person. And going forward, it may become more intense. Uh, I, that kind of power is really terrifying in the hands of the, of the wrong people, as you say. Well, one last question. Right now, with the technology that we have, uh, there's conflicting things that, uh, uh, number one, we see how intelligence agencies and hacking of a lot of our social media. Are there better systems like Signal uh, or Telegram? And can are they monitoring what we say just by speaking next to a device, uh, next to our telephone or next to our iPad? Uh, Signal is probably the best that you can get. Uh, it's end-to-end -end encrypted. Uh, now, Tucker Carlson had his Signal hacked somehow. He had Signal messages. He was supposed to interview Putin, and Signal messages either from his phone or, or his assistant's phone, they were hacked. So it is possible, but at the very least, it narrows it down, right? So now if we're speaking on Signal, it's just you and me and the NSA, right? At least it's, 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 it's as simple as that. Uh, Signal is great. Proton Mail also great, of course, uh, also end-to-end -end encrypted. But all these systems have vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, if if you don't want it being known to the entire world, you better not put it online. Uh, 
as far in Telegram, I don't use, but I hear that Telegram is also great in that regard, although I, I can't vouch for it. I don't use it and I don't know enough about it. Um, as far as the phones listening to you at all times, um, that's really an open debate. So uh, you remember in the 2013 uh, Edward Snowden files, there was the PRISM program. And in the PRISM program, it was, it was a set of aspirations. It was, it was things that the, the NSA was working on, uh, but they, they partnered to get backdoor access to everyone from Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Yahoo, AOL, uh, on and on and on, right? Facebook, on and on and on. Uh, meaning that they would have direct access to your 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 uh, private messages. Uh, Elon Musk recently said that you had federal agencies who accessed private messages on Twitter. As far as like verbal uh, recording goes, undoubtedly these agencies are recording everything that's said on a phone. And the the problem is is that and so you have these huge data centers like in Utah. Uh, the problem is not really storing such data, although that, that eventually becomes a problem. The problem is sifting through it and finding meaningful patterns, which is one of the reasons why they're banking so much on artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence can conceivably, especially if it's equipped with natural language processing capabilities, sift through all of that and find the kinds of meaningful patterns that agencies like the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, uh, MI6, or their counterparts in, say, China, uh, that they would be able to do that. Uh, but it's, it's really an open question. The more paranoid will tell you they have all of that already and they know everything about you. Uh, cynics will say they don't even, the technology doesn't even really work all that well. Um, it's probably somewhere in between, but it's something that I couldn't really answer with any great confidence other than my suspicions. And my suspicions always tend towards the darker ones. Uh, one, th one thing I will say, though, that's very, very interesting uh, is that, and it's a phenomenon that everybody experiences, you people talk about it all the time, that they'll say something within earshot of their phone, and suddenly an ad will appear that shows that, right? I, 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 man, these Nike shoes, you know, I wish I had some. Next thing you know, in your Facebook ads or whatever, there are the Nike shoes. This happens all the time. It's not supposed to happen by, you know, what the public, the publicly declared use of the technology in your phone uh, doesn't include, it's going to listen to everything you say and craft ads to it. And so just on the basis of that, um, you know, if we eliminate coincidence, and I'm sure that that's some of it, um, uh, just on the basis of that, I would say that other agencies that are uh, almost as sophisticated or maybe more sophisticated, nobody really knows, than companies like Facebook or Amazon or Twitter uh, that agencies like the NSA, the FBI, CIA, uh, if they have possession of technologies that are at least that sophisticated, they wouldn't use it to show ads. Uh, they would simply use it to mark you as a dissident um, or for whatever, or, or an asset uh, for that matter, uh, whatever it may be. But it, it, a lot of this is unknown. It's, it's in the realm of the imagination. Uh, it's, it's one of the hard things about covering transhumanism is that you're looking at these really crazy fantasies and trying to figure out where we're at in reality right now. And um, yeah, I do my best, but I don't, I, you know, I, I only have so many answers on those sorts of things. Great. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, your briefing back to you, Jim. Joe, I've kept you way longer than I said I was going to, but I so appreciate uh, what you have shared uh, with your permission, sir. I would like to ask you to come back again sometime in the future and continue this. Um, you've given us an awful lot to think about, and you've given us a truckload to pray about. This is called the World Prayer Network, and we have people that are going to be going into prayer right now, and then this will be sent out across the country. And uh, so there's a lot to pray about what you've shared, but I'm very grateful to you. This is extremely helpful. You are a powerful communicator, and I just pray the blessing of the Lord upon you. I'd like the privilege of praying for you, and then we're going to let you go. Uh, Father, I, I thank you for Joe Allen. Thank you for his intellectual grasp. Thank you for his passion for truth, his commitment to values, to biblical values as a fellow Christian. So I pray protection over him and around him. And I pray an avalanche of blessings up on him as he goes forward. Show him truth, ongoing truth, so he can speak it to us and keep us informed. Bless him, his family, and all that he undertakes to do. I pray in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.